think it's page uh, 995 in the Pew Bible. We'll begin reading in verse 1 through verse 7. Hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. It was several years ago in the New York City Marathon that that something very memorable happened of the uh, tens of thousands of runners who participated in that famous race. It was not the person who won, whose name was later recalled, but the person who finished last. His name was Bob Wieland. He finished 19,413th, dead last. His time, are you ready for this? Four days, two hours, 48 minutes, 17 seconds, unquestionably the slowest marathon in history ever. But what made Bob Wieland's story so special is that he ran the race not with his legs, but with his arms. Seventeen years earlier, he was a soldier serving in our military and in combat, and during a battle, his legs were blown off. So when he runs, he sits on a 15-pound saddle, he covers his fists with pads, and he runs with his arms. His swiftest pace is about one mile per hour. He moves his torso forward one step at a time. Bob finished four days after the start, but what did it matter? He had an attitude of perseverance, of endurance, and an attitude of not to quit or to give in to adversity. I wanted to preach this Sunday and next Sunday a couple of different sermons, different passages of the Bible on persevering in the Christian life. It's important to have obedience over the long haul. One man who saw this wrote, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. But that is difficult because the world beats us down. It throws cold water on your enthusiasm for Christ. I've been walking with Christ since I was in high school. And there are a number of people who began with me And they, from all indication, are not in the race anymore. And cynics look at us and they say, you'll fade in time. Eventually you'll lose interest. You just wait until the realities and the hardships of life catch up with you. You just wait. Then you'll have your eyes opened and you too, you will fold. But so far that hasn't happened. And the realities of life only serve to convince me of the truth of God's Word more and more. But many things can trip us up. It can be doubt. It can be stagnation. 
It can be guilt. It can be remorse. The devil wants to get you to look at your past. And he will tempt you to be discouraged through remorse and regret over things from the past. And you will think, if only I had done that. Or if only I had not done that. And before you know it, you are dead in the water. If he's not successful in getting you to focus on the past, he will turn your attention to look at the future. And the future he wants you to envision is not one of hope and trust and anticipation, but one of dread and concern and pessimism and fear. So what I want to do today from this passage, this brief passage of Scripture, is to help equip you, Christian, to live for the future without fear, facing the future without fear. This letter of 2 Timothy has been called Paul's last will and testament. You know about wills. What's the old saying? Where there's a will, there's a relative. (laughs) Paul's will had nothing to do with money. From all indication, he had no money. His will and his legacy was going to be in the form of converts and in younger men equipped for ministry. Timothy was one of those. And so he is writing to encourage this man who was part of his Christian legacy. And there's a fond affection. I won't go through each of the phrases, but in verses 3 and 4, he refers to their long-term friendship. He remembers Timothy's heart is displayed by the sensitivity of his tears, the things that were that weighed on on Timothy's heart. They'd been through a lot together. There was a deep camaraderie and friendship between them. Friendships like that are rare, aren't they? To have lifelong friendships to where you see each other and maybe years have passed and you you see each other and say, now where do we leave off? It's just kind of like there's a continual conversation through life. Well, that was true of Paul and Timothy. Verse 5 mentions Timothy's family, and this, this should not be overlooked. It's very important. Timothy was from a believing household. At least his mom was a believer. His mother was from a Jewish background, and she'd been taught about the Lord from the time she was young through the Old Testament scriptures. His father, though, was a Greek. He was an unbeliever. He did not believe in the message of the gospel. And do you know that? Luke tells us, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 16, that's how we know that he wasn't a, a believer. And as far as we know, there's no indication in the Bible that Timothy's father ever came to faith in Christ. But his mother had come to believe, to have faith in Christ as her Messiah. And in fact, Timothy's grandmother also was a believer. And so Paul says, Timothy, I've seen the faith of your mom and your grandmom, and I see that same faith in you, and I thank God for it. You see the power of God's plan and covenant families where his grace is poured out. He brings children into his kingdom through households. Even when those households are messed up, Is there any normal family out there? I mean, are there any of us that could look back uh, at least one generation or more and not see that, that how God ruled and overruled, sometimes in real strange situations in our family backgrounds? God's ideal plan for the family is to have a believing and godly husband and a believing and godly wife living the faith before their children and before the world, but that was not the case in Timothy's life. And so when you look at your own family and you say, man, things are messed up, just remember the power of God's promise. His promise in the lives of Eunice and Lois and Timothy and mothers 
grandmothers, never, 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 never underestimate what God is using you to do to implant in the lives of those children whom God has given you. Many a woman has been the tool that God has used to bring children to faith in Christ. Probably, if we had a show of hands, those of us that profess faith in this room, if I said how many of you were greatly influenced by your mother or grandmother, probably most hands would go up. Okay, verse 6, moving on. I want to focus on verse 7, so I'm, I'm rushing to get there. In verse 6, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. Fan the flame. What was this gift which Timothy had been given? Probably Paul had in mind the grace that God had given Timothy to assume and to carry out the office of being a pastor-teacher in the big city of Ephesus at the church there. And Timothy's giftedness for this work had been confirmed when the elders of the church had laid their hands on him and commissioned him to go there as a pastor-teacher to Ephesus. And so he had obvious gifts that equipped him for ministry, but now Paul's saying there's a need for more fire. He needs fire. He's to fan the flame, to fan his gift to full flame. We know from other scripture that Timothy was young and he was weak, and by temperament he was timid. But Paul is calling him to stand tall in his calling. And not only because Paul believed in him, but because Paul knew the Holy Spirit had enabled Timothy to do this. You and I, every Christian, has at least one spiritual gift, sometimes more. These are special endowments that the Holy Spirit gives to us when he indwells our lives as believers. And so it's like a fire and it needs to be, it needs to be tended to. If you're camping and you make a campfire, you have to tend to that fire or it will burn out. That's no mystery. You have to fan the fire. You have to keep it hot. And so if you don't, if you untend it, it'll just become ashes. And when we fan the fire and step out to serve, no matter how inadequate we may feel, we should expect, and we can expect, the Holy Spirit's power to love and self-control. Spiritually, if you burned with fire, when you saw the Lord working in you and through you, and there comes a great sense of accomplishment to realize that God is using you in his eternal plan, he's working through you, working to accomplish something of eternal consequence and lasting value, and, and perhaps, perhaps you are the one who burned with fire, and that was not long ago. But now, from all indication, you would say the fire has died down. And maybe you say there's really nothing but ashes, and there's not even any heat coming from it anymore. And so you serve the Lord, and you say, well, that was then, that was back then, this is now. But in your heart, you wish you could turn back the hands of time and go back to that other period. But you can't. But here's the good news. And this is what we're getting ready to look at. You can rekindle the flame. And it's never too late to do so. How? Well, you do what God told the church at Ephesus. That was the church that Timothy pastored. They had grown cold toward God. So he tells them to remember from where they had fallen, to repent, and do the deeds they did at first. He says, what character 
what characterized your life when the flame was hot. Well, go back and return to that. You take the first step. You take the initiative and return to that which was there before. Look at verse 7. Now he talks about the spirit that God has given to us. It's a spirit not of timidity. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some things we know about Timothy that he... uh, He apparently physically had frequent ailments. We know that from 1 Timothy 5. We know from 1 Corinthians 16 that he was naturally timid. Some of you here, some of us are like Timothy by by personality, by temperament. No two of us are just the same. We all have our own particular characteristics, our virtues, our failures, our weaknesses, our tendencies. But maybe by nature you are more timid than you would like to be. Or maybe as you look at other people, you feel much more timid. Apparently, Timothy was that way. We know also from the Bible that relative to the other men in the congregation he pastored, he was younger. Although we think that he was at least 30 years old when Paul wrote to him and said that, let no one look down on your youthfulness. We know also that those who opposed the gospel in Ephesus Ephesus, where he pastored, pastored were formidable they were determined and so he had he had those that were enemies of the gospel where he was pastoring in that city we also know that at that time in history believers were being persecuted by the state by the government now we don't know whether some of all, or all of these factors contributed to the fact that Paul says don't be timid maybe all of them did But all we know is that because of his personality and his particular situation, the flame of his Christian service needed attention. Now, all of us deal probably in some fashion or form with fear or timidity. And maybe we need the same reminder that Paul gave Timothy. How does does fear show itself? Here's a variety of ways. I'll, I'll mention about eight of them. Fear and timidity can manifest themselves in just fearing others. The old fear of man, which Proverbs says brings a snare. (laughs) The fear of man brings a snare. You're afraid of what others think or what others will do or what they might say about you or what they might call you, and so that, that snares you, that fear. You may be timid because you become disillusioned with the whole thing of the Christian life. And amazing grace is no longer amazing. In fact, it's kind of boring. And it's been so long since you saw transformation in your own life or in the life of anyone else, you perhaps have lost confidence in the gospel to bring change. So you become disillusioned. Third, fear or timidity manifests itself with hesitancy. You're hesitant. You're indecisive about God's call on your life. You're indecisive about the gifts that he's given you. You're indecisive about his will for your life. And when you're presented with an opportunity to serve, you're hesitant and you back away. And that's timidity. Four, timidity has made you silent. If you and I in a personal conversation were talking, I could say, when was the last time you verbalized your faith to someone? Just told someone what you believed and why you may not even be able to remember. It's been so long because your timidity has made you silent. Fifth, timidity or fear brings a half-heartedness 
in your Christian growth. There's no passion for God's Word. There's no passion for prayer. There's no zeal to serve Him. There's no earnestness in your mind and heart. Six, timidity shows itself by you avoiding difficulty. You just don't want to be bothered. And so whether it involves a difficult person or difficult people or difficult problems or difficult obligations, you just drift along and just kind of move away from difficulty. And I would ask if at the bottom of that is not timidity and fear. Seventh, timidity shows itself with carelessness and laziness and weariness in your service to Christ. Eighth, timidity and fear have paralyzed you with great pessimism about the future. I could ask you almost about any subject, and your response back probably would be pessimistic, if in a real honest moment. World's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, the country's going to hell in a handbasket. Church, nothing, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening in my life. Nothing's happening in my family. <clears throat> and you may say that's just pessimism. I would say there's fear behind that, and there's timidity. Paul's point is that timidity and fear and all the things that come from fear are not consistent with the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Christian, to the extent that any of those descriptions I just gave you may fit you, that is not consistent with the Holy Spirit because He is a spirit of power and love and self-control. So let's get to that point. How do we have this feeling, this indwelling of this spirit now. He describes and says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there. He's not talking about spirit like a personality. But the Holy Spirit, he's given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. <clears throat> you come to faith in Christ, and you, you come and you have a personality, you have a temperament, you have... Maybe, as I described earlier, maybe you're naturally timid. Maybe you're just very reserved and very sensing and very detailed. And, and you may be naturally timid, naturally fearful. Is that going to immediately disappear? Of course not. That will remain present in your life. But through the Holy Spirit, you are enabled by His power that both works in you to will and to do. You are enabled then to have the filling of this spirit that is power and love and self-control. So you do not suddenly morph into a person who is unafraid, but God gives power in spite of that. Your personality will probably remain the same, but God gives power through it to will and to do of his good pleasure. So what kind of power? Power to endure, power to go on, regardless of the circumstances, power to hold on. It means that even the most timid person can be given power in all things. Now, let me get tangible. Think of a biblical example in the New Testament. Peter. Here is one of the closest followers of Christ. We know from the gospel accounts a lot about his personality. He was outspoken. He was a Galilean. He was somewhat assertive. But at the same time, he was fearful and timid. He feared for his life there in the boat and walking on the water. When he's questioned on the night of Jesus' arrest by a young girl, by a fire. You were with him, weren't you? You're one of his followers. No, 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 not me. Because of fear. Because of fear he denies Christ. But what do we see happen then? A short time later, a matter of months later, in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, who is it that's preaching 
On the day of Pentecost, when over 3,000 are added to the church, Peter, who is it taken before the same religious leaders that pronounced a death sentence or worked to get a death sentence on Jesus? Peter. Peter, what a change. What a transformation. Same personality. But God's spirit now is overruling with the spirit of power and love and self-control. That's what we see. Then he mentions not only it's the spirit of power, but it's the spirit of love. Why would love follow power? In timidity, when you and I are fearful of something or someone or situation, what are you preoccupied with at that moment? Self. I'm wanting to preserve myself. I'm wanting to protect myself. I'm pretty self-absorbed. In the moment of fear, I am thinking about me, most likely. So when we're most fearful, we are most absorbed in ourselves. And it's here that the spirit of love comes in. And there's only one cure for self-absorption. The cure for self-preoccupation, whatever you want to call it, is to become so absorbed in someone or something else that you have no time to think about yourself. And so the Holy Spirit makes that possible. And he enables you to love, to love God, to love Christ. Think about that, says Paul to Timothy. As you become absorbed in the love of God, you will forget about yourself. That's the spirit of love. So the spirit of love delivers us from self-interest and self-protection and self-concern and being depressed only about ourselves. It gets rid of all these at all points. So we need to talk to ourselves. And when I'm fearful, I need to say, Chip, the spirit of God dwells in you, the scripture says. The spirit of God is a spirit of power. Lord, give me power in this situation. I depend on your work, not my own. The Spirit is a spirit of love. Father, help me to get my heart and mind off myself and my own concerns and to put them on you and what's best for your kingdom and the way of redemption, how you spared not your own son for me. Greg Laurie is a gift to the church. I don't know if you listen to or read. Sometimes he's on the television. He's an evangelist. He's a pastor in California, but he's really an evangelist at heart, and the gospel comes out regardless of what he's preaching on. I like Greg Laurie. I read his email updates during the week uh, that I subscribe to. And I was reading this recently when he talked about temptation. He says, is there a certain sin that seems to have a foothold in your life? And does it almost seem as though the sin is getting more and more powerful each month, each year, and each decade? Do you ever wonder if you ever will gain victory over it? At worst, are you beginning to wonder if you're really a Christian? Sin is a horrible master, and it finds a willing spirit in the human body. Sin wants to dominate you, but the good news is that as a Christian, you don't have to be dominated by sin any longer. The Bible says, For we know that our old self was crucified him, with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should be, no longer be slaves to sin. He says, Here's what we need to remember. We will never get to a point where we are temptation-proof. But I do hope we can get to a point where sin will not be so alluring. It comes with greatly growing deep in our faith, learning more about Jesus and being so enraptured with his love that we see this world for what it is. And then he quotes from the classic hymn, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full 
In his wonderful grace and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. John Piper and Jonathan Edwards and others called it the power of a superior affection. That as I grow in my affection for God, I will lose affection for the things that are opposed to God. Last of all, he says it's the spirit of self-control. <clears throat> Pardon me, I've been talking since 9 a.m. with Sunday school and this. At last, self-control. Fear causes us to lose self-control. But the Holy Spirit produces in us self-control, discipline, or balanced mind. So though you may be fearful and timid, the spirit that God has given you, the spirit of control, the spirit of discipline, he can cause you to focus your attention on Christ. And so when Christ told his disciples, when they deliver you up, when they deliver you up to be tried for professing me, take no thought what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour that you will speak. So he says, don't be afraid. You will not lose your nerve at that time. Now, if you read church history, and I hope that you do, I, as a brand new Christian, someone recommended to me when I was in high school to get a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many of y'all own a copy of that in your house? All right, some of you, not enough of you. You can get it in any bookstore. I don't know how many times it's been printed. Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It goes back to the book of Acts, and it tries to catalog, at least up until the time that it was written, people who have died, Christians who have died in their service of Christ, who've been martyred for the faith. And I would read these stories, and I would read... Um, from ancient church history and, and more recent church history. And I, I read about the Covenanters. If you don't know who the Covenanters were, they were a Scottish Presbyterian movement during the 17th century, so during the 1600s in Scotland. And they derived their name from the term covenant in the Old Testament. They were named, they called themselves Covenanters, though, because in a series of bands or covenants, they bound themselves together to maintain Presbyterian doctrine and policy as they saw it taught from the Bible, and they said that would be the sole form of religion of their country in Scotland. Well, the law turned against them, and the king of England turned against them, and they were put at odds. And so they were, their activities of gathering for worship and not using the prescribed books and liturgies became illegal. Sounds almost silly, unthinkable to us now, but upon penalty of death. Upon penalty of death. And so many were martyred for their faith. It's kind of They were the delta force of the Christian church. If you go on Wikipedia and look up the Covenanters, there's some amazing uh, original art, but it would show them out in the fields having communion with their soldiers, with their armed muskets standing all around on lookout for the king's soldiers. Anyway, the story's told of a young girl. One of, this is one of the many things that happened. And they would have outdoor communion services on Sunday afternoons, and they had to move them around for fear of persecution. So she was on her way to one of these communion services, and the services were absolutely prohibited. And so the soldiers of the King of England were looking everywhere for these people 
who we're going to meet to partake of this communion service. And this young girl, as she turned a corner, she comes face to face with a band of soldiers. And she knew that moment that she was trapped. And so for an instant, she wondered what she was going to say. And then immediately, which I think the Holy Spirit gave her, when questioned where she was going, she said this, My elder brother has died, and they are going to read his will. And he has left something for me, and he has done something for me, and I want to hear them read his will. And the soldier's letter passed. My elder brother, Christ, has died, and I am going to hear his will read, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And he has done something for me, and he has left something for me, the body and blood. You'll celebrate, you observe till he comes again. And I want to hear his will read. They let her pass. She lived. Why? Because she, like you and me, in Christ, those who profess Christ, have that same spirit. It's not a spirit of fear. It's not a spirit of timidity. It's a spirit of power and love and self-control. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the death of our elder brother. And he has done something for us, and he has left something for us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, who indwells us as believers in Christ. We ask that even today, in this coming week, that we would rely more and more on you, on him, to be at work in our lives. Forgive us when we give in to fear. Forgive us when we live with pessimism, which at its root, really, is faithlessness. That we don't believe you, that we don't look to you, that we don't trust in the power of the gospel to bring change in ourselves and in others. And we pray. Father, I pray for those of us that maybe really need to fan the flame. Maybe, our, maybe there's nothing left on our fire but ashes. We pray that this very week there would be a change, that there would be a rekindling, there would be a fanning of the flames, and we would see you work in our own lives for transformation, in our own trust in the gospel, our own zeal to serve you and follow you. In his name we pray. Amen.